Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an improv nerd. Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Oh, Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an improv nerd. Hey everybody, this is Jimmy Corain and this is another episode of Improv Nerd. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, our guest today is from the Second City main stage here in Chicago, Holly Loren. Did you like that dramatic pause? I actually did. Uh, we have not been getting episodes out as quickly as possible and I just want to apologize. We've been really backlogged, but more importantly, my wife and I, Lauren, are looking for a new house, which means we have to get our condo that we live in now ready to sell. And our realtor, Mike, who I've known for a while, uh, says the three most stressful things in life are marriage, death, and moving. And in the last year, I have done two out of the three. So yesterday, my wife and I and our realtor, Mike, went to go look at some houses. And when you're putting your house up for the market and you're going to look at other people's houses, you start to look at things differently. And you start to develop like total judgments. And, And the first thing is, if you're selling your house, number one, don't, if you're the owner, don't be there when people are coming to look at your house. Because a couple times yesterday, it's like people move and and there was one woman who's like, she's getting a divorce and I, I don't, and she was still there in the house and I don't need to know about that backstory. And the other thing is it's it's weird. It's like, you don't really feel comfortable like talking about the house because the people are there. So you really don't get the sense that you're shopping or getting to look at the house you really feel like you're you're intruding. The other thing is limit the pictures on the wall of your kids. Now, I love kids. I have nothing against kids, but a couple of the houses had tons and tons of pictures of their kids in the house. And one house, which we, we kind of liked, in the bedroom, uh, the, the son had all these pictures of him playing football and, and, you know, the certificates he won and trophies. And then this big cardboard cutout of him in his football uniform on a piece of foam core sitting up on the dresser and, and and you're like I'm gonna kick this kid out of his room so I can make this an office so keep that in mind and then the third thing is throw out shit I mean you go into these houses and they look more like garage sales or flea markets than they look like they're trying to sell their house and one house it was like it was a very small house it was actually kind of a cute house uh, but it was tiny and in the living room this guy and this guy was kind of creepy anyways. Like he, he was there and then he, he, he like, we came late, which is always really awkward, you know, with your, so your realtor's got to be like, hey, I'm, you know, Mike from Remax. And then he gives him the card and the guy doesn't say anything and he just mysteriously disappears. But this guy, I don't understand it. He had these giant speakers. They were, and I'm not kidding. They were four feet high, three feet around in this tiny living room. And it's like you could barely get by and you're just like, what the hell? Move, get that, clear that stuff out. You would not believe how messy people are in their house when they're showing it. it it's unbelievable. And it's like, you, you can't see beyond the mess. Okay, enough about that. Uh, our guest today is Holly Laurent. She is from the Second City Main Stage here in Chicago. And this is just a great interview. Holly is just, uh, I've known her for a long time when I was teaching at the I.O. here. 
And Holly talks about uh, the Second City process. She talks about her philosophies on improvisation. She's also married to Greg Hess from Cook County Social Club. So I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. Here's Holly Loren. How are you feeling? Great. Good. Um, so your dad was an evangelist preacher, Christian, mm-hmm. uh, and you would travel around in vans going to uh, other churches and high school gyms and stuff like that. What was that like growing up? Well, it was all I knew. So uh, to me, it was just life. Um, I remember if, well, it started out my parents had a band, okay. a Christian band in the 70s doing Christian rock, which was very... Cutting edge back then? Ooh, yeah. And and very offensive to a lot of church people who... What was offensive about it back then? Oh, I think rock and roll was considered, you know, like anything with percussion um, also leads to dancing, and Uh dancing leads to sex. Right. (laughs) Um, I think. I mean... Still true to... Holly, it's still true today. (laughs) So... um, you know, anything that had a beat with it was, you know, not church music, was not honoring to God. So my mom's dad was a Baptist preacher, a Northern Baptist preacher, and it was really hard for him when my mom and my dad married when they were, they'd only been 20 for a few months, and they had this Christian rock band called the Good News Circle. And and they traveled around. They would do like tent revivals and all this stuff. And that went on for quite a while. And I remember if a show ever went late, my mom opening up two you know metal folding chairs and just saying, "Lay down on these." And I would I remember the thing that sticks out in my mind the most was how I could feel the I don't know if it was the bass or the drums. I could feel it in my body as a kid, and I would always be like, "I feel that inside." And that's probably what sticks out to me the most. And then I loved going and getting in the van afterwards and being like, it's comfortable in here, and going to the next place. I think that's why when I started touring with Second City, I was like, oh, my God, there was something about, this is like going home to me. You know, get, getting in a really stinky van and <laughs> having stinky armpits for sure and being like, all right, let's go home. And then also growing up, you guys were not allowed to watch television, right? No. In fact, my mom was on Phil Donahue one time. Remember Phil Donahue? About this. It wasn't meant to be. About not watching TV? Yeah. It wasn't Uh, meant to be, but she was in the audience because a friend was like, we're going to go. It's funny now that I think. I'm like, that's hypocritical. She went to a TV show. Right. But it never hit me until now. But um, so she was in the audience, and Phil Donahue was talking about something, about maybe the effects of television on children or something. And it came up that, you know, she was like, we don't have TV. My kids, we want our kids to play games and read books and play outside and stuff. And he ended up spending a whole bunch of time with her in the audience talking about that. But you couldn't even play with Barbies, right, as a kid? No, no, no. <laughs> That's very inappropriate. You Girls play with baby dolls. Like, my mom would be like, I don't want you playing with an adult female body. <laughs> and I remember one time when I got really mad because the Stickovich girls across the street had Barbies and it was so cool and it was a thing to do. I remember being like, I think you're just jealous, Mom. Like, jealous of the Barbie body. So, like, <laughs> so did, you, did they ever talk to you about 
the birds and the bees, the sex talk? Oh, it was terrible. I, I think I already knew from Kristen Davis, the late girl. We all knew from Kristen me. Davis, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think she told me, um, sort of, to the degree that you can understand it as a kid. Mm-hmm. But um, Do you remember what grade that was? I don't. It's mm-hmm. all hazy kid memory. But my parents had this idea, I think from Jim Dobson. Mm-hmm. My parents raised us all according to the Jim Dobson Who books. was Jim D- Dobson? A big Christian? You know, Focus on the Family and stuff? No, I don't. And um, Colorado Springs. Focus on the Family is like a big, uh, super like evangelical, fundamental Christian thing. And this guy, he had like a Christian radio show for a long time. And he, I think he might be like a psychologist or something. And so he wrote all these books about like how to raise Christian kids mm-hmm. and to protect them from the... Um, darkness of the world and so my parents raised us according to these books which was like spanking you know spare the rod spoil the child and I had such a strong will too that um, I got spanked all the time I got spanked so much how did you uh, misbehave in your when you were growing up what did you get spanked for everything and anything well I remember discipline not working on me because <laughs> because I looked at it as like almost like points like my mom would spank me and I'd be like okay that's one for her and then I would be like what, what could I do to get her back and I remember being really like I remember one time I, I remember thinking like what could I do that would really make her mad and there was a plant and we had really light carpeting in this house in Michigan that I grew up in and I remember being like maybe I'll put all that dirt in the carpet. And so I was like rubbing it into the carpet and having a good time. And I remember just looking up and my mom was standing in the doorway crying. And I mean, now I look back and I'm like, oh, I was terrible. And so I'm not going to have kids because I have that curse on me. of like, I hope you have a kid just like you. But um, I just remember being like, okay, I got to do one that she'll do one. So, so they would eventually just like lock me up so I couldn't do anything. Because wait, but how did we get on this? I was focused on the family. Wait, it was going somewhere. Oh, sex. Yeah. Oh, so I, I don't know if, if they got this from Jim Dobson, but okay. what my parents did was they bought this book called Turning Twelve. Mm-hmm. And on my twelfth birthday, my mom took me to do something special. I don't even remember what it was because I was so traumatized by the other thing. Something special that I wanted to do. And then we went to JC Penney's and we got a training bra. And then on the way home from J.C. Penney's, I'm in the passenger seat, and she's driving our Brown Station wagon, and she was like, now here's a book. What's it called? And I was like, Turning 12. And she was like, now I want you to read it to me. And I was like, okay. And I opened it up, and it was like ovaries and sperm and stuff. And it was just so horrifying. <laughs> and, and that's how I got the birds and the bees thing, was having to read it out loud to my mom in a book. <laughs> and then she was like, so, and then she came back and told my dad, like, well, we had the We did it, it's covered. Yeah. yeah, we did it. Yeah. Uh, because you probably, they probably wouldn't have brought that up in any Christian, like, like in public school in sixth grade, we had a sex ed. Right. I was in Christian school. Right. Yeah. And no. what did they, what did they, what was, what was, what did they teach you there? One thing that I did learn in a science class uh-huh. was the canopy theory. Have you ever heard no. of this? In a science class in this Christian school, they told me that when God decided to flood the earth, there was, there was a canopy of water in the earth's atmosphere that made the whole earth like a greenhouse. And so dinosaurs were thriving in this greenhouse atmosphere. And so when the dinosaurs got on the ark, <laughs> just two, two of each type of dinosaur, right. And then the ark was ready to go, and then God collapsed the canopy of water to flood the entire earth, because that's the only way you could flood the sure. whole entire earth. 
And um, then it changed the atmosphere. So when the dinosaurs got off the ark, there was no longer a greenhouse effect that they thrived in. And they all were like, ah, and they died. (laughs) I was taught that in school. I was also taught that scientists will, like, create fossils real intricately and, like, place them places. So, because they hate God. And scientists, like, there was a thing of, like, science and God. Like, they hated, like, people who aren't into science, they want to, like, um, they hate God and they want to make people not believe in so God. So when did you realize that this, all of this, those theories were just not true? Oh, it started in college. Mm-hmm. You know, like, taking philosophy classes and stuff and being, like, <laughs> like my brain hurts when I started thinking for the first mm-hmm. time and not just like being given all the answers. Mm-hmm. Now, also when you were at home, you, 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 you're not allowed to watch TV, but you get, you're bootlegging copies of Saturday Night Live and you're rehearsing the parts of the women's parts and then performing at, at your dinner table. Yeah. What did, what did your family think of you? <laughs> Um, well, they, by that time, by the time I got to high school, it, they'd eased up a little bit. Uh-huh. You know how parents always get um, more and more chill with more, the younger kids? Right. I think my brother and I got the brunt of a lot of the strictness um, because, like, we couldn't even listen. We, of course, couldn't listen to rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Rock and roll. Um, <laughs> until my brother got a clock radio when those were new things. Mm-hmm. And so that, because so, he was like, I don't want mom waking me up for school anymore. So he got this clock radio so he could get up himself. But what we realized was there's a radio on there. <laughs> and so we would wait till my parents were in bed or until they thought we were asleep. And we would crawl and bring the radio on the floor and lay on the floor and listen to U93. And we would listen to Thriller and stuff. And I remember hearing Vincent Price's voice and just being like, oh, it's so scary. And it was so fun, but I was also like, oh, is it worth going to hell for this? <laughs> and you know, you, you joke about, the, but you were really afraid that you would go to hell. Oh, I was, the, I was so afraid my entire life. Because, I mean, we were taught such fire and brimstone, like in this Christian school I was at, where we would have to go to chapel three times a week. Like, I was in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Christian school, Bible class five days a week, chapel three days a week. And so much of the message was about, like, there are demons all the time all around Uh us that are actively seeking to destroy you. Like, these are words that... I heard as a little kid, and so I'm picturing these invisible... I'm being told by adults that, like, you know, adults usually say, like, it's not real, it's not real. Like, I was being told by adults all day, every day, that it is real, and they're invisible, and you can't see them, and they're trying to destroy... So I had the worst nightmares as a kid. I would wake... I would have dreams of being in hell and being, like, beaten by Satan with, like, whips and stuff, and, and like, seeing people scream, and, like... But I, I would have the most intense dreams of, like... When I first, these people came to my school about abortion, and they showed us all these pictures of like dismembered, bloody babies and stuff as a child, and I, and then I started dreaming that. Like I one time I had a dream that the surface of the earth was covered with dead, bloody babies, and I was <laughs> and I was walking in them and like screaming and crying. <laughs> this sounds terrible. <laughs> I, it, it, I'm people are probably going to be like she's a sociopath, um, but like I was tormented my entire life by horrible nightmares and I would wake up sweating and crying and I would go mark my little um, horse calendar and I would mark the day and be like today's the day where I'm gonna like get it right be a good Christian 
and definitely have my name in the Lamb's Book of Life and get into heaven. Now, on top of this, you also have uh, low self-esteem oh and, and body issues. Oh, my God. Now, if you look at you today, you're beautiful. And is that hard for you to take in? Thank that compliment? you. It feels fantastic okay. to hear that. All right. Okay. And so, so what were you like physically back then that you had such... I mean, it, it was mostly because I was really, really skinny. And we really were so poor. When the band kind of broke up, my dad started just traveling as an evangelist. A solo was, act. Yeah. 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 Okay. And it was. And, and, um, and so we would travel with him um, when we could. Uh, and he would go around. And, and I mean, we, I would watch him cast demons out of people. And then I would be so scared because I'd be like, now where's that demon? <laughs> He's back in the van. I know. And Get I would be there. so scared. And at night, that night, I would just be like, I know there's a loose one now for sure. And I don't want it to jump on to me. Um, and... So, yeah, I was, I was so, so, so scared, and I just wanted to, like, get it right. And I was even, I, I, my parents, as they eased up, I was allowed to listen to Amy Grant, mm-hmm. and I loved Amy Grant so much. But at my school, they were saying even Amy Grant is bad. So I remember coming home one night and crying and taking all my Amy Grant cassette tapes and throwing them away because I was like, it's just not worth it. I really want to go to heaven. And... And yeah, but then I started, yeah, getting into like I would always sneak over to the Stickovitches to watch like Gilligan's Island. Mm-hmm. But I got in big trouble one time because I wasn't supposed to be watching that because of Ginger. Right, because she's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and um, oh, oh, body issues. Yeah, so we were so poor that I remember like very, like kind of always having the same thing to eat. And I was just a super skinny, like, scrawny, bony girl anyway. And people just, you know, people make fun. But they would always be like, Ethiopian or anorexic, which I didn't even know what that meant. Or they'd be like, do you have to run around in the shower to get wet? Or, like, if you stick out your tongue, you're a zipper or, you know, stuff like that. And so as a little kid, I would just be like, well, something's wrong with me. Like, it's bad to be skinny. I remember, I, like, when I started being able to go to the mall, I went to GNC and got that weight gain, mm-hmm. that powder, and it was so gross, and I would, like, try to eat it with bananas and ice cream. I think I only did that once. <laughs> but but I, would, I remember, like, looking at girls in my, in my school who had, like, curvy calves. <laughs> I really liked a nice curvy calf. <laughs> or who had boobs. And I would just, like, stare at them all the time and be like, oh, my gosh. And, and as, like, you start to get interested in boys, like, and the message you get is that there's nothing boys care about more than boobs. And to be like, oh, my gosh, I don't have that is like, oh. And, and in a way, it worked to my, my, my scrawny, skinny boniness worked to my parents' advantage because the, the big thing was, like, that you had to stay pure. That's how we would say not having sex. Stay, stay pure. Stay, stay, stay pure. a virgin. Okay. Yes, huge, huge, huge. And so you have to stay pure, you have to stay pure, you have to stay pure. And I did for a really long time because I was so ashamed of not having poops. Uh-huh. I didn't want anyone to see that, you know. And I also did this thing where I would wear sweatpants under my jeans uh-huh. to look like I had more, you know, that I wasn't as skinny as I was. And one year there was a teacher strike in the fall, and in the spring we had to go to, we had to, go to school through, like, the end of June. Uh-huh. And I remember, like... And I never could wear shorts or skirts because I had to keep up the, like, my legs are this big facade of the, je- the mm-hmm. sweats under the jeans. 
And so it was like 97 degrees in the end of June, and I remember like sitting in a typewriter class being like, I think I'm going to pass out. Because I was wearing all these layers, but I had to keep up the facade. So yeah, I was really, and, and, and so I was really d- down on my body and being like, oh, I don't have like a woman's body. Ginger and Barbie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so... Um, uh, and then also, at a very critical time, in fifth grade, um, I, all through elementary school, I was obsessed with Randy Whiteford. Nothing in the world matters as much as Randy Whiteford. Who was Randy Whiteford? Oh, he was just a boy in my class, okay. and I loved him more than anything in the world. And he sat right next to me on this side in class in fifth grade, and I was so happy that our desks were next to each other. And one day, Darren Goodwin, Randy's best friend, walked by me, and, he, and I used to have really, really short hair, like mm-hmm. almost a boy cut. It was like a really... Um, like, I guess, tomboy kid, because I idolized my big brother, and I just would do anything he did, so I had really short hair. And Darren Goodwin walked by, and right in front of Randy, he called me Hawknose. And it was the first time, like, I'd ever thought about, like, my face or whatever, and I was like, I have a Hawknose, I have a big nose. And I was so ashamed because it was in front of Randy. (laughs) These details. (laughs) And and so that's the day I grew my hair out. And I've had long hair ever since because, like, in high school, I would hide like this because it hid my profile that I thought was a hawk. (laughs) <laughs> and so and I remember we had a bathroom in the mirror like you could pull out this one like medicine cabinet mirror and then look at the other mirror and so I could like look at my profile and I'd just <laughs> I'd stay in the bathroom for the longest time being like it is it's so big and bony and I was so embarrassed so embarrassed so I thought I had this hideous thing on my face I already had this hideous body and so I just had the lowest self-esteem, yes. And so I never tried out for plays, which is all I ever wanted to do. Until you get to college. Anderson, right. And you, 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 you do a play there. I did And then that there. leads you to improv. Yeah. And what was your first experience? You had to take two improv classes, is I'm not mistaken? Yes. And you didn't really like it, did I you? I hated it. What did you hate about it? Because uh, it, it had to be your own words. And I was so embarrassed of what people would think of anything I had to say. And I didn't believe in anything I had to say. And I just was really, like, I was just insecure. And so it's the opposite of everything improv has to be, of, like, make strong, solid, active choices and believe in what you have to say and, like, put your best self out there and trust and all of those things. And I just didn't have any of that in place, so I hated it. My knees would knock. I would skip class. I hated it. But I knew because I used to... Um, VHS tape old SNLs and memorize every like you said I would memorize every um, all the lines of any of the female characters on SNL like early 90s SNL Delta 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 on that one that one was my favorite and um, and I would I would just perform SNL like all the female lines at the table every night with my family and I think they just were like yeah Holly's just putting on a show um, because I'd always I was very demonstrative at home but um, not at school and stuff. So in college, someone finally convinced me to try out for a play, and then I could never go back because I knew that I knew it's all I ever wanted to do, but I just didn't have the confidence to say like I want to do this. And then when I declared it as my major, I had to go have the like drama professor sign the paperwork so I could go take it and declare it as my major or whatever. And he said to me, he was like, you know, with fifty cents in this degree, you can get a cup of coffee. And I remember being like, how dare you, sir? (laughs) You have no idea what I'll do with this. (laughs) So you hated improv so much that you come to Chicago. Yeah, I came to Chicago because it really bothered me that it had bested me. And I was like, that's where I'd heard of Second City. 
And so I was like, I'm going to go to Chicago and I'm going to face this dragon and see why, you know, I'm so scared of it. And therein was all the um, kind of like life truth that I needed to learn that um, helped, I guess, take all that indoctrination I had gotten that had made me feel so bad, um, even religion as well as just like low self-esteem and, and improv over, it, it took at least a decade, but improv slowly helped me retrain my brain to be like, it's okay. And you said something interesting. You said you love the whole concept of I got your back, and it was something that you had been looking for your whole life. Can yeah. you explain that? I just remember walking around in high school and I know some people liked high school. I it was it and was for torture people, for me. I got your back is an expression that we say before we go on stage yeah. to to improvisers. I got your back, so I'm going to take care of you up on stage. Uh-huh. Whatever happens, I'm just going to go along with. Yeah, you. and I just and the reason I think that speaks to me so powerfully is because I am still in many ways that high school kid um, who was just walking around the halls so scared, just thinking if I had one person who was like. You know, if anyone talks bad to you, I'll kill them. You know, if I just had, I would just dream about like one person who would be loyal to me, like the Sam to my Frodo. Mm -hmm. I would just, I just would dream of that like Sam type of person who was like, I got your back no matter what. It's all I ever wanted. I just thought I could do anything if I had that person because I just never felt that. And um, so when people started saying to me and touching my back and looking me in the eye and saying, I've got your back. And with The Reckoning, it was a big thing, too. POV and Jet, and people would always be Pat like, O'Brien, who yeah. was writing for Saturday Night Live, and Jet. Yeah. Adela, yeah. They would they would add on to that, I've got your back sentiment, and they would say, um, you know, if you do something weird, I'll, I'll do it with you, or I'll be weirder. It'll, uh, it'll be great. It'll be perfect. And my whole fear my whole life was being weird. Like, I had this weird, you know, like, religion. I always was so embarrassed of everything. And so to be like, to have someone say, if you do something weird, I will, too, it was all I ever wanted. And you also said something interesting that it took you 10 years to find your weirdness, your mm-hmm. voice. What do you mean by that? Even in improv, I was always so scared. Like early at, at IO2, I remember being on the sides of the stage during Herald shows and just shaking and overthinking everything. And, um, and uh, because I think deep down, my fear was that I was dumb. I, I think from having this sort of like Christian education and still coming across things in my brain, like my husband will say things to me where I'll be like, wait, what? And I'll, I'll, I'll realize I have some weird piece of dogma still underneath a rock in my brain where I'll be like, that's still under there. And it's created this thing in me of like, oh, I'm dumb, I'm stupid, I'm whatever. And I went, I like got my master's, still trying to like prove to myself. And I got straight A's all through graduate school. And I still was like, I'm dumb, I'm dumb. Because it was just so ingrained in me. Well, what was and ingrained that you were dumb? The cr- I think I just felt like the Christian upbringing was like weird and dumb. And I, and like, I just felt like compared to other people... I just, I felt like I would always say something dumb. I think that's why I was so afraid of improv, too, is because I was like, I'm dumb, I'm going to say something dumb, and then people will laugh at me. And what happened over the course of 10 years of doing improv is I realized that I used to be so scared and try not to say dumb stuff, and it took me a really long time to realize that when I let myself be free and I say dumb stuff, therein lies the comedy and my actual voice. I'll give you a perfect example of this is that a few years ago, Greg and I... Greg has your husband yes. from Cook County Social Club. Yes. We were driving to his parents' house, his grandparents in Michigan. And so we're going through these tiny little towns. And um, 
and I'm just sort of sitting looking out the window and I, we drive by this place that says Eagle Storage, a storage facility. And I was like, <laughs> and, and we hadn't been talking in a while and Greg was like, what? And I was like, this must be a really unique town. And he was like, why? And I was like, that place, he, it says Eagle Storage. I was like, it's weird that that many people in this town would have eagles. <laughs> and, and the minute he laughed, I realized that's what I do constantly in comedy is like, I'll hear the laugh and then I'll try to act like I meant it like that, but I didn't. <laughs> I'm like that, like I'm so concrete. And it's still, I think, because I didn't even learn how to think critically till I was in college, I still will have so many concrete things like that because I was concrete for so many decades. I couldn't think abstractly. I couldn't think critically. That a lot of times that voice is inside me where I'm like, there are a whole bunch of eagles in there. It says that. And, and so I think I, it took improv to teach me, like, just fucking say it. And then whether you figure out why they laughed or not, it felt good to get that laugh. And it's okay. And even if, like, I'm dumb to get that laugh, like, I accept that now. And so I'm letting myself say stuff and, um, and not censor myself because it, it's, it, improv has taught me, like, it's okay. Now, it's interesting when you say this, you, you, you're getting really emotional about this. <laughs> what do you think that's about? Well, it's funny. Thinking back to that time with Greg is in the car that day, I tried to hide it and be like, yeah, I totally meant to that, man. Good. <laughs> Are you married to someone funny? And, and I hid from him that, like, I didn't mean it like that. Because I don't want him. I'm like, oh, he went to William and Mary. And then I went to a Christian college. And I'm still trying to impress him, you know? And so a lot of times, like, I'll still slip back into that thing of, like, trying to be someone I'm not. And it's a slow, like, baby step toward, like, no, that's me. I think like that. Oh, well. <laughs> All right, let's do... Are you ready to, to say something dumb? Because we're going to improvise. Yes. Okay, great. Um, tell us what we're going to do, because we talked about this. This is a form called Shotgun yep. that I saw you guys do and always wanted to be an understudy or be a part of it. And You should have said something. I said something, and then it was... To who? I, Not I, to me. Said, I think I'm going to say it to you. To me? Yeah. <laughs> I think he said it to Kevin Fleming. Okay. He's the real jerk of the group. Okay. So tell, tell, us, about, tell us about this. Um, so Kevin and Brian Wilson okay. and Bo Goldwitzer and uh-huh. I wanted to do a show together. And we were like trying to think of a new form. We're going to invent a form. We're going to do a new form. And this is going to be our show. And we were trying to think of things. And my favorite, my favorite way to play is to like connect and just talk with people uh-huh. and not have to like find the game and play it really hard and blow it out. I just really like more of that connection is the way I like the most to play. And so I was like, hey, what if we... I was trying to think of a scenario in which people just talk together and are sort of... Um, you know, held captive with each other and mm-hmm. can't, you know, go jump and play those games. And so I was like, what if we do a thing where, like, we're on a road trip? Because I love road trips. Because when you're in the car, like, life is simple. You're contained to that thing. And you end up, like, really diving deep with people. And there's natural tension in it. Yeah. 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 So we were like, yeah. And so we decided that the show would start where we're all in a car. And we decided that if we all match energy at the top, that it keeps us all on the same page. And our only goal was to pretty early on get out where we were going. Mm-hmm. And like what our relationships were to each other and match each other's energy. So okay. if, if one person was nerdy, we were all nerdy. Whoever spoke first, like set the temperature of the car and then we all matched it. 
Um, and then, but the other guys, because like Brian Wilson and all of them are classic heighteners and right. game players, they were like, yeah, and then at any point we can jump out and do a run or whatever. And I'd be like, yeah, but then at any point we can also get back in the car and talk to yeah. each other. Um, and so it became, um, so we started doing it, I think, late nights, Thursdays at I.O., and it ran for a really long time. And then um, we added Paul Britton, mm-hmm. who I admired the hell out of because. I think at the time I was doing Shotgun, I was still kind of playing scared and mm-hmm. playing... Uh, and this is out... Uh, you're playing scared, and how many years have you been doing it? I mean, by then I'd probably been at I.O. for, I don't know, three, four, five years, six years. So five maybe. years you're still scared. Yeah, still really um, playing scared and trying to be really good at this, you mm-hmm. know, and, um, and wanting that validation outwardly that I wasn't giving myself. Which is what you know. So much of performing is. I mean, you're literally putting yourself up in front of people right. to be like, "Do I exist?" Yeah. You know. Um, but uh, so, what do we need to do to start this? Just so just that. So it's so you can stay in the car the whole time. Uh-huh. If something strikes you that you'd like to um, pursue scenically, mm-hmm. um, we can jump out and go into one scene. We can go into a run of scenes, mm-hmm. jump back or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's whatever ideas you want to pursue. So if one person makes a move to get out of the car, you just strike the chairs and then start playing. And if anyone goes to set what looks to be the car again, then you jump back in. And time can jump, too, once you get back in the car. You can be right back where you left off, or you could be like, if we were all going to Dad's funeral or whatever, Mm -hmm. it can be on the way back from the funeral. Or it can be 10 years from then. It can really be anything. We're going to find out. All right, great. So we just need two chairs. Is that it? Yep. Okay. All right. We're going to improvise for you. Like, what about, um, what's the first letter of your first name? B. B? Yeah. And what's the first letter of your last name? M. <laughs> so, what's a two-word phrase that begins with the letters B and M, like bowel movement or... <laughs> what? Blow me. Blow me. <laughs> okay, I'm going to I didn't mean to hear your feelings. I, I say blow me like... I say blow me like the same way you would say like, you know, um, <laughs> just like a placeholder. <laughs> I'm sorry. If you want an apology, I'm yeah. sorry. Okay, thank you. And I, w- I will be diligent to not use that anymore with you. I appreciate that. A little sensitive today. Well, I don't really want to you think I want to go to my parents? <laughs> Whoever wants to go to their parents? Anyone in the world who wants to go to their parents? But you know what? My parents taught me that sometimes life is doing stuff you... Most of life is doing stuff you don't want to do. Do you want to get up in the morning? Do you want to get out of bed? No. Do you want to go to the dentist? Do you no. want to go to work? No. Do you want to go to the dry cleaners? Do you want to do your laundry? Do you want to fold it and put it away? Do you have a point? Life is pretty shitty. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know if there's anything I can do to make it more comfortable for you. 
I mean, my mom's gonna do everything she can to like make your favorite stuff. I'm sure she made Chex Mix because last time you said you like Chex Mix. I'm sure she'll have like three kinds of Chex Mix. <laughs> and that's the thing. I, I, I we get there and she 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 makes such a big deal over everything. It's like, look, I like Chex Mix. Just next time I come, you don't have to do Chex Mix. You know what I'm saying? It's pointless to tell her that. You want to say that to her? I will, I'm going to say that to her. No, just say you like something else. Say you like money. <laughs> See, here's the thing, Carol. I, th th we're living just how your parents are living. We're repeating the same thing. How so? Okay. I don't like the way you wash the dishes and put them in the dishwasher. The dishwasher's more like a sanitizer. It's not like I'm being redundant. You have to get the like chunks off, and then when you put them in there, it's being sanitized. The heat sanitizing it, getting off bacteria. But so they're not being double cleaned. I'm cleaning them, and then the washer is sanitizing. It's so I was afraid to to mention anything. Ever to me about that? Yeah. You can tell me anything. Well, you say that, but then then. I get really mad. Yeah. Oh, you get. So so I mean, it's like then I, I decide I'm not going to say anything. Well, then, if you don't say anything, then we don't even have a relationship. Good. What? Maybe we don't have a relationship. We do have a relationship. Well, We're um, in a relationship. I understand that. But technically, we are. We have a marriage license and all that. But I'm saying, I don't feel like we're connecting. Okay. Would well, you want to go to counseling? Well, just the way you say it. Yeah, I do want to go to counseling. You do? Yeah. You but honestly want to go to counseling? I want to go to counseling. You would go? I would go to counseling. We would go and we would pay for it? Oh, yes, we would. How do you think we're going to go to counseling? I, I don't know. I mean, we can't even get a flat screen TV, and you think we can pay for counseling? <laughs> oh, a big old box. I'll go to counseling. I would love to go to counseling. I would love for someone else to hear from me. <laughs> Are you saying that I don't listen to you? Yeah, but it's that thing. It's the Mars and Venus thing. I don't want you to fix it. I don't want to tell you what I have on my mind because you just try to fix it. It doesn't need to be fixed. It I'm not going to fix it. Just, just, <laughs> just tell me one thing. I, I, I promise I'm not going to fix it. We don't have sex now. It makes me feel bad. Like we're not in love. Now are you not going to fix that? I'm trying to <laughs> But it is an honest thing I feel because you don't come on to me, and I know it goes both ways, and I don't come on to you either. But you don't do it, and it is supposed to be more male. If it's more of a male thing to like want it, I'm pretty indifferent to it. <laughs> but I would like for you to be more of a like, come on to me. Okay, I have tried that. You and have? I have tried that. Name a time you've tried that. Okay, um, Christmas. Christmas sex? <laughs> yes. That's pretty... Wait, 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 what Christmas sex? It was four years ago Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> what Christmas was that? What do you mean what Christmas was? It was when we were in the, we were in the apartment on um, Sedgwick. Okay. Okay? Oh, the year we made our own ornaments. We made our own ornaments, yes. Okay. And we made our own gifts. Yeah. We didn't have, well, we, we had, had less money than yeah. we had then. Yeah. But here's the thing. I came on to you, Carol. All right? I don't remember. How did you do it? <laughs> <laughs> was it just like the kiss, kiss, 
like cheat kissing? Well, we had shared a bottle of wine, so I was a little drunk. Okay. Okay? Yeah. And it was at night. Okay. And uh, you were asleep, and I woke you up. <laughs> okay? And then I got on top of you. Okay? <laughs> and then I said, look, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to come on to you. <laughs> you screamed, as I remember. And from that moment on, okay, from that moment on, I thought, well, every time, you, you, you don't want that. Like, there, I felt there was mixed signals. I was in a dead sleep, Jim. I was in a dead sleep. I don't want it when I'm in a dead sleep, plus my breath is going to be bad. Who cares? See, this is the thing, babe. Is that one time, you have one time. It's like, so, let's say one time a squirrel bites your finger. Are you going to be scared of a squirrel every time you see it for the rest of your life? You always, like, color everything with that one thing for the rest of its life. That's why I don't go outside in the fall. (laughs) (laughs) It's called preventative medicine. You know, I stopped taking the pill I know. six months ago. I know. I go through the medicine every week. <laughs> you know why I stopped taking it? Because what's the point? I mean, if I can drink milk, why would I have lactate? <laughs> do you remember the last time we had sex? Yeah. You do? Mm-hmm. When was it? Eight months ago. It was in a hotel. Oh, for Paul and Sue's thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I love a hotel thing. I love hotel things. I love hotel things. You know, would you ever like put on a dirty hotel movie? And like we could both watch it? No. We both will watch it and then see what happens? <laughs> yeah, I could be into it. <laughs> the only thing is then the next day, the bill. <laughs> Are we getting any better? Are we getting any closer? Is that the point? Well, I mean, you suggested it. Let's go watch Hotel Dirty Movie. And then, then it becomes a money issue. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I always think about? At some point, having sex will be the last time we have our sex. We don't know which one that is. <laughs> <laughs> but one of them will be the last one. You don't know it at the time. Kind of makes you make it, makes you want to make it really good. You know what I think about? What? Our first date. What about it? I came over to your house. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, where are we going? Where are we going? I'm like, I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you. I blindfolded you, <laughs> put you in the car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you kept driving. Mm-hmm. Like. You lied minutes. to me and told me you brewed your own beer. <laughs> 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 I 
<laughs> we got back to my place, remember this? Yes. And I had made a steak dinner for you. Mm-hmm. We sat down. I asked if you had any blue cheese. Yep. I like to put a blue cheese dressing on I steak. And I said, get up and get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I could tell you were looking at my butt. I was. <laughs> and then you hit your head because I didn't take the blonde coat off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got ice, remember, and I put it right here mm-hmm. on your thing. Mm-hmm. You called it a boo-boo bunny. I called it you a boo-boo bunny. Made, you made the hand towel in the shape of a bunny yeah. rabbit. And then we just got on the couch and we just snuggled. Yeah. And we talked. Yeah. I remember one thing you told me, and I just, I, like, it was like the sweetest thing. It's like, you know what? You're like, I always thought I was ugly. And like, I looked in your eyes, and I'm like, you are the most beautiful person I've ever seen. Well, of course you're going to say that was snuggling that <laughs> 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 no. Carol, I meant it. <clears throat> And it wasn't just to get in your pants, because it took me a while after that. It took me longer than I thought. You were sweet. Yes. And you were so kind and considerate. I remember one time, you blew me off on a date. I mean, three months into it. And I was like, that's it. I called my friend, and I'm like, that's it. Who'd you call, Mike? I called Mike, and Mike's like, Hey, keep going out with her until it's, it's no more fun. And I showed up, and you had a little bag, this cute little bag, and you had stuffed it with food. And I'm like, this girl is fucking sweet. And fun. And fun. You're still fun. Yeah. Just sometimes you have to do laundry and pay bills, but we get squeezy and fun. And like, people live in, like, People live in Sudan and stuff. Like, no one promised them fun. It's different. I know, because we're in a place where we were promised life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, it's like built into our country. We're supposed to expect to be happy. I just, I don't know. I mean, did I ever tell you what happened the very first time I saw you? No. I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't get it. What kind of reaction is that? It's exactly what happened to my body. I saw you, and I went, <gasps> like my body knew something was going on. And I was like, who is that? What's his name? Who is that? What's his name? And I just tried to find out your name. And when we first were snuggling, it's like, Remember how, like, when you first start to touch each other, it's like, it's like, I don't know, it's like the concentrate of the orange juice without all the water poured in. Yeah. <laughs> and then it just slowly becomes all water. How do you get back that, like... Concentrate? Yeah. I guess it's impossible. Counseling. <laughs> Counseling. I've been listening to these tapes on relationships. 
that. You know what they say that the one thing, the biggest thing of miscommunication in relationships? What? Communication. <laughs> <laughs> as we were going like oh shit it's going dramatic it's not funny shit people are gonna get bored but then I was like fuck it is that because being on Second City I mean if you had done this at I.O. let's say when you were doing experimental stuff with the Reckney mm -hmm. would you feel the same way? Mm, yeah I mean well you know, if Sharna walked through and was like, you were doing something that wasn't funny, get out of here, or something. And then two dogs follow. Yeah. <laughs> Licking themselves right. and like, draining. Um, uh, I, I, uh, no, I think, um, I think because it's improv, there's always an expectation for funny, make me laugh, make me laugh. Um, and, but there's something in me that believes... No, it's not always going to be make me laugh, make me laugh. Because like, if two people are talking, we're going to create something that people will identify with or relate to in some mm -hmm. way. And sometimes that's not funny. And sometimes, like, I think it makes other things funnier when you, you know, take a breather from it. I don't know. Right. We had Steve Waltine on, and he said something about it's just about being interesting on stage. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of adjusted how I teach and how I look at it. But it's still... You're still you're still trying to like oh god I hope they like that improv I hope right. I hope it was funny Absolutely. you know but there's nothing more icky than when you watch people who are like trying really hard to be funny mm -hmm. and it's like oh you just don't want to watch that I think our sort of like bullshit meters are so in tune you know mm -hmm. and if if it looks like bullshit people tune out really quick so. I don't know. I think sometimes I'm willing to make those sacrifices to be... And I, and I think that would happen a lot with, like, Reckoning or Shotgun. Sometimes it would get really, really real. Mm -hmm. And um, it depends. Sometimes the audience goes with you and sometimes they don't. What I liked about that kind of improv was, was I was... And, and, and this is what I love. This is what I love about improv is pulling things from my real life. Me too. So a lot of, like, you know, Lauren, who is my wife, she actually did make a bag and bring it, you know. Um, there were some other elements, that, and there are other things that I actually had said to Lauren, we like to snuggle, all of that stuff. I love it when it becomes revealing about who you are through a, through a character. That's exactly the way I love to play, too. I'm always using real details from my life, and I think it's a way even to psychologically explore your own, your, your life and your experience, and, and you're kind of processing it. But I also think it creates the best play because it's real, it's genuine, and then people's bullshit meters aren't going off. And even if I'm playing someone who, if I'm playing a hitman who's there to kill someone, that's pretty far from actually who I am in real life. Um, but I can still bring details of like whatever, like is that is that a, is that AC window unit like supported in the back because. I put in an AC window unit that day. You know mm -hmm. exactly what you're saying. And then free. we did, you know, this this uh, scene here. Uh, we didn't really find any games, mm -hmm. right? And are you are you comfortable with that? And when when I mean games, is there's patterns and the heightening and stuff like that. Are you comfortable with that? Uh huh. Yeah. 
Yeah. Great. So we're going to we're going to take some questions from the audience. Okay. Okay. And either about what we did or about you or about improv. So if we could turn the lights up, that would be great. If we could get the lights up, we'll. Uh, uh, yes. What do your folks think about you now? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, it just got really tense around the election. Um, we were just not talking about it, but because um, they're very conservative in your mm-hmm. liberal, mm-hmm. okay. Um, it's it's really hard. I think in the last five to ten years, there's been a slow tapering off of talking about really anything. I think um, I used to try to have conversations with my dad about like let's talk about hell, mm-hmm. like about an actual hell. And why I don't think that exists. And that was so fruitless um, and icky that I think there was like an intentional tapering off of talking about stuff that we're very different on, on my part. And I think there's been a like kind of sad, maybe um, resigned tapering off on their part. It's it really makes me kind of sad actually. Are they? Do they ever talk about your career? Are they proud? Do they come to shows at Second City? Um, they do. They they come to one show. Like they came to one Southside show, and they came to one of this one of the Hundredth Review. And um, I, I think they are proud to the degree that they can even get it. It's funny when I was touring, I we went to some high school near. Uh, where my parents lived and they came and saw a tour co-show of mine and afterwards I took them back to where we had our stuff or whatever and when we were kind of walking backstage and going to this green room in this high school auditorium my dad said to me he's like hey Hall you're kind of like doing what I did with Good News Circle and I was like yeah yeah I mean that's true in many ways like I'm very much following your footsteps he's still a preacher at a mega church and is very charismatic and everyone he's so beloved and he's a performer in the same way I am and so we're so much alike. I think that's why it makes me really sad that... You know, my mom recently said to me... Or not recently. Remember the tsunami in Japan? Yeah. My mom called me. And they never got improv at all. Um, uh, the, the, the closest they got was Improvised Shakespeare. They went to see Greg do Improvised Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And my dad was like, that's real neat. That's neat. They're smart. Those guys are smart. And I think he, I think the conceit of the Shakespeare thing helped him like have something to hold on to enough, and and then he and then I was like, oh, then you got to go to a Cook County show. I was really trying to like show off Greg to my parents, and I took him to a Cook County show, and afterwards my dad was just kind of like, <laughs> <laughs> like was pretty bewildered, and I had said like, Greg, please don't kiss any of the guys. <laughs> like, do you think there's a, do you think there's a part of your dad that is kind of because of his Christianity, embarrassed about what you do? That he can't share it with? No, not embarrassed. I think it very much pains him that he knows sort of, like, I listen to NPR. (laughs) (laughs) Things like that. You're saying it's more political? Liberal media is destroying my children. Um, uh, Yes, but it's everything, too. Mm -hmm. Like... um, my parents came recently to visit on a Sunday, and they were like, we'll come later because we know you get done with work real late. on." So, you know, I don't get home until 3 in the morning on Saturday, so they're like, we'll come after lunch. And they had, come, they had driven to Chicago and gone to a church in our neighborhood, a Presbyterian church in our neighborhood, 
because Greg grew up Presbyterian. And so when they arrived at our house, they had all these things from the church. And they're like, this is right in your neighborhood. It's so cool. It's Presbyterian, Greg. And, and, and they were like, it was so neat. There was a girl there who like had dreads and she was playing an accordion. <laughs> and Greg and I were both just kind of like, but the closest it came one time was when the tsunami hit my mom called me and she was like how I heard something that kids laugh like I don't know I'm going to botch the statistics but she's like I heard that a kid laughs like 50 times a day and a grown up only laughs like 3 times a day and she's like I was looking at this footage have you seen the water coming in you know have you seen the water stuff And and Greg and I don't have TV so I hadn't She's like, it's terrible. It's terrifying when you see these people up on these bridges looking at the water coming in. It's so destructive. And she's like, and I was watching it, and I thought, you know what? Holly, every single night, makes a whole bunch of grown-ups laugh hundreds of times. And I thought, you know what? Laughter is good medicine, and so you're doing a good thing. And I was like, Whew. It was like the first time where, like, since my life has taken this path, I got like. How did you feel when she said that? I felt, it felt, I, I, I think I probably like shook and cried, really sentimental tears because I, I felt like understood for a second or like we were on the same page for a second. And I hate feeling that we're on different pages for most of the time. Even though like when we're together, there's so much love and so much whatever, but just not being able to talk about stuff is just kind of like, ay, ay, ay. Yeah. Uh- have you, you told your dad this story about the van and how, you, how comfortable it felt touring because of the trips with him? I don't, think, I don't know if I did. I, I make your bed they melt if you told him that. I will. I'll tell him just for you. Jerry's a, <laughs> Jerry's a father and he's got a couple kids. A couple more questions? Yes. Yeah, Holly. Um, could you just summarize what it was like, uh, your path from when those rough classes in college to where you now on the main stage from the path you took, what class you took from that point to where you are now? Um, yeah, I took, um, so I moved to Chicago and I had only heard of Second City. So I went to a few Second City shows and Stephanie Weir was on stage oh. doing her psychic and everything. And I was just like, <gasps> I mean, eyeballs out of my head. And I, I was like, oh my gosh. And so I was like, I have to, you know, take classes at Second City. And so I read all their different ones and I got into an improv for actors class because I had my degree in acting, my bachelor's. And you had to have that or something to do that. So I was like, okay, this is my way in. And my very first class was in the main stage, which I think they rarely do anymore. Mm -hmm. So we got up on the main stage boards. And my very first scene was with Jordan Peele. From Keen Peele. Yeah. Yeah. And and it was a scene almost exactly like what we were doing. We were both sitting on this um, bus stop bench Mm -hmm. and just talking. And I remember I was so terrified. Norm Holly was our teacher, and he was like back near the rail, smoke chain smoking, because <laughs> you could still smoke inside back then. And um, I took that class, and then I was like, "Oh shit! Now I have to audition for the conservatory." And I was so scared to audition because what if I don't get in? But I did. I went all the way through the conservatory, um, and um, had Gelman and um, Tim O'Malley and all those guys. Um, and uh, went through the conservatory and then did my show, that conservatory show, 
And I think you have to audition again, like, halfway through the conservatory. At least you used to have to. And so I remember everyone in our class, we were just like, oh, what if I don't make it? What if you don't? Well, I won't. If you don't get it, I'll still show back even if I get it. Oh, bullshit. And, um, <laughs> and, but got through. And then while I was in classes at Second City, a, a girlfriend of mine, Julie, was like, I heard about this thing. It's like Improv Olympic or something. And I was like, sounds cheesy. <laughs> and she's like, well, go to the show. The show on Monday nights or something. So I went to an Armando. And again, my eyeballs fell out of my head. It was Lutz. John Lutz, who's was, on 30 Rock. And Peter and Gwynn had to be in that Peter cat. Gwynn and Dan Backedall. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And that kind of changed my life because I didn't know anything about long form and all that stuff. And so I started classes at I.O., went all the way through I.O., and um, I also became an intern because I didn't have enough money to pay for classes. And so I interned on Wednesday nights, so I would watch Carl and the Passions, Mm -hmm. and those Wednesday nights I would stand there and and then like drag leaking garbage out to the alley, um, (laughs) just dreaming about it. And I became such an improv nerd that I would go to... I would go to Armando's with a huge notebook and I would like chart the show. Like and and so I would I would even chart it. I would I would chart it. Like you know how you used to have to um like uh what's it called when you would what's it called when you would have to like um structure your sentences like Arse. Yeah. Diagram. Diagram. When, like when you would have to diagram your sentences. See? I'm dumb. <laughs> um, I would diagram the show. And so I would like mark like Peter Gwynn would do a callback, and I would be like, "That was a forty-minute callback," and, like, and I would be like blown away. I would remember, I'd be like, "How did he remember that? It was amazing!" And I would go to IO every single night of the week, and I was truly there every single night. And um, and then when I was like, I don't think they do this anymore, but when I was done with level two, I got put on a team. Well, that's unheard of. That's unheard that of now. And um, it was a team uh, that was very short, and it got broken up. And um, then Shar and I, I remember talking to me, she's like, I'm putting together the super team, a super team. And she created the reckoning. Which that's, a, that's a good Sharna. It sounds like, you know, I'm going to make you a star. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, she, so she put together the reckoning, and, um, and we were a herald team. And we and uh, uh, I can be more succinct with this. Sorry. And um, and we were playing. We were so scared, and we're like, we can't get cut from the schedule. We can't get cut from the schedule. And that's always just sort of hanging over you of that axe. And so we were like, we're going to rehearse twice a week. Like if if other groups rehearse once, we'll rehearse twice. So we started like getting everyone miles. Which, which I think is really important today because anything that I had been involved in that had been great is because people make a commitment to themselves and to a rehearsal schedule. So yeah. you guys were saying to yourself, we're not going to just be any Herald team. We're going to we're going to we're going to do twice as much work. We're going to make this commitment to each other. And I don't think that happens as much today. I don't know. Yeah. We 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 also were like we need to benefit from everyone. So like we were like we're, we're going to get coached by Miles and we're going to coach by Straub, yeah. yeah and TJ and we're going to coach by um uh, Jenny Hagel and from every, like we're going to get everyone like who, who, who else is doing anything good we need to know everything in her head his head, head, head. Mm-hmm. and so um, that's how our Tuesday night reckoning slot happened was there was nothing up there at late night on Tuesdays there was no show and we were like we're going to start having our second rehearsal up here on this stage and the lights are going to be on it sounds kind of pretentious now to be like and if people want to come watch they can <laughs> um, but it just immediately turned into a show and um, and then it became uh, 
we were like, this will be our experiment slot. So we'll do our herald shows downstairs, and up here we'll create forms, or you give us a form on the spot, or we'll do, and then POB turned it into, we have to do whatever is the most scary to us. So we kept having to do stand-up and stuff. Um, but you, at, at that point, too, you had given up on Second City. And didn't Pat O'Brien suggest that you audition? Yeah. So, oh, the other thing is the reckoning, we together went through annoyance classes together, which was amazing. Sutton and Joe Bill, mm-hmm. Mick. And so that was fantastic. And then somewhere along that line, um, we, uh, I, I, somewhere in there, I'd auditioned for Second City Touring Company, didn't get a callback. The next year I auditioned again and got a callback. And so I went to the callback and we did a long form for it. And I remember like Alex Fendrich and all of them right. were, in, were in this long form we did together. And afterwards I felt like, like yeah, take that second study. That's how we do it. <laughs> and, um, and nothing came from it. And the next year I auditioned and didn't get a callback. So I was like, oh, they don't, they don't want me. Like I, I must be getting worse in their eyes if last year I got a callback, this year I didn't. And so I gave up on it. And then years later, P.O.B. was one of the people watching the auditions. And he's like, just go. And I was like, I think I'm, like, past that. Like, I'm, I'm even improv age-wise past the point of touring. Um, and he was like, fuck you. You know, like, that, that's like ego and pride. And I was like, you're right. So I went and auditioned and... Um, and got on the touring company. And then I was on the touring company for, or I, you're an understudy. And I was an understudy for a really long time. And then they started pulling people and putting them on touring companies, girls who had been understudying shorter than me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, damn, they just really don't want me. Because I'd been on the bench for two years. And, um, and then, uh, uh, so I was sort of again about to give up and be like, well, Maybe I just need to go in a different direction. I was doing a sketch show with Jet and all that stuff and being like, I need to learn other chops and writing and whatever. And then um, and around the time that I was like, I think I'm done, uh, I was getting married. And I was like, well, I don't know. If maybe touring is something I'm not going to do. Then, of course, Beth calls me in. Beth Kligerman. Uh-huh, and is like, we want to put you on, on Green Co. And I was like, I'm not sure, actually, if I want to tour now. And it's funny, she she got really mad. And what I found out later was that she just offered it to Vanessa Bear, and Vanessa had said no. Vanessa Bear from Saturday Night Live? Uh-huh. Van- she had offered it to Vanessa Bear, and Vanessa said no, and then she offered it to me, and I said, I don't think so, and there was no one else on the bench. And so I went to I.O., and I went to Vanessa, and I'm like, why did you, why did you say no? I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, and she was like, I'm having a really great time with Swear Jar and with what I'm doing, and I don't want to do that. And I remember being like, damn. <laughs> it's so great to just have that much self-assuredness and to be like, no thanks, Second City. And so I went straight back to Beth's office and was like, uh, yeah. Because <laughs> I, think, I think I'd always just been like, yes, anything for you, Second City. And, um, and so... But you hid that desire for, about Second City because there, yeah. you, you bring it up to Greg that you want Second City and he, he was... Yeah, when I told him that I took it, he was like, why? And I was like, because I want to tour. And he was like, but you're like kind of past that. And I was like, 
but I want to. <laughs> and I think he was really kind of like, but The Reckoning's doing such cooler stuff, and... But The Reckoning doesn't make any money. Exactly! So, you know. <laughs> exactly, but neither does touring. Right. Unless I, like, don't spend my... Per diem, yeah, yeah thirty-five dollars, yeah, a day. But, but so, um, but then I toured for five months and got main stage, which is also very weird. So, but I think it's because I came in at a really opportune time where I came in and we were writing college shows, so I was able to like write a bunch of stuff, and I was like in a writing zone because I'd been doing a bunch of sketch with Jet and with Reckoning and stuff. So I was bringing in, I think, some like a little bit more bizarre stuff because, and and Beth told me a couple times, she's like, you really need to learn the Second City voice. And what I, did she mean by that? Yeah, like that I needed to, I think, go watch more tapes and sort of emulate like some of the scene structure and stuff. Because I think I was bringing in really bizarre, weird well, stuff. Well, you were working with Jet. And J- I, mean, <laughs> J- I mean, Jet will go to the weird. Yeah. You know, and she's yeah. a genius. Yeah. And it works for her. Yeah. You know? But I was bringing in really bizarre stuff. And I think that was one of the first times when she's like, you need to learn a Second City voice. I kind of was like, yeah, I need. No. Uh, this is my voice. And luckily. Um, Billy Bungeroff, who directed the first show, Southside of Heaven. Um, he came in and was guest directing or something. Green Co. Where I was bringing in all this bizarre shit, and I think that kind of rang his bell a little bit. That was a little bit more in his wheelhouse, and he was like, "I like this." And then he ended up directing the next show, and I got into the next show. I don't know how much because of Billy or whatever. Does that answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm talking too long. Great. Um, we got to wrap this up. We, we've gone over time. Uh, uh, I want to thank Holly uh, Loren for being our guest. And where can, we, where can we see you? Where can you see me? Yes, yes, right. You can see me eight times a week at Second City on the main stage every night but Monday. Um, and there are improv sets uh, every night but Friday. Um, and the improv sets are always free if you ever want to come just to the improv set. Um, and we're changing the show right now a little bit, so it has a little bit of new life breathed into it because we had to change some campaign stuff. Mm-hmm. The improv set. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the show gets over around ten. So the improv set usually starts at ten fifteen on those weekdays. On Saturday, it doesn't start till like one fifteen a.m. <laughs> and then on Sunday, it's a seven o'clock show, so nine. So on Sundays, it starts at like nine fifteen. A little bit different. Great. Thank you so much for Thank being here. Thank you, Jimmy. Well, there you have it. Another episode of Improv Nerd. I want to thank our guest today, Holly Loren from the Second City. Also, our home. And there's such good people here. And if you're ever in Chicago, check it out. Stage 773. And as always, my producer, Ben Caprero. Uh, check us out on feralaudio.com and all the other really cool podcasts they have there at feralaudio.com. And if you ever get a chance, you got a little extra money, go on the feralaudio.com webpage. Uh, is it a webpage or is it a website, I guess is what they call it? Uh, take a couple dollars and just donate because uh, like 80% of the money that you donate goes to the artist. Uh, if you want uh, more information on me, Jimmy Corain, and uh, my award-winning classes, The Art of Slow Comedy, and my wonderful improv blog, which I, I'm just having a blast writing about. If There's just improv tips and my ins- insecurities about performing and uh, just all sorts of really cool stuff. Go to jimmycorain.com. That's jimmycorain.com. And if you're listening and you like what we do... Uh, Please go to uh, the our fan book. Uh, our fa- did I say fan book? Our Facebook fan page. 
which is Improv Nerd and Like Us. It really helps with my low self-esteem. And actually, my uh, shrink has got me on less Prozac, uh, uh, the more likes we get. I don't want to put any pressure on you guys, but I'm just throwing that out. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support. Uh, hopefully, we'll be in a town near you. Uh, soon because we're doing a lot of traveling and until next time remember walk don't run I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would, he even, why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, <laughs> oh my God. he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. <laughs> Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao Bella, it's me, Scarface. <laughs> oh my 